and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be covering episode 124, entitled Exodus Part 2. Now, when I originally recorded this podcast, uh, I had meant to do it as a double-length episode because indeed, Exodus Part 2 was originally broadcast as a double-length episode. Now, I've decided to split Uh, that into two episodes for a couple of reasons. First of all, on the official uh, series DVD release as well as the official series uh, Blu-ray release, which is to say the entire series in one package, um, Exodus Part 2 has been split into two different episodes, essentially episode 24 of the first season and episode 25 of the first season. Uh, Second, I've been mentioning uh, for a couple of weeks now how uh, I'm kind of up against a little bit of a, uh, a data storage issue for the end of the month. So it seemed to me that uh, the best way to handle all these things, including uh, the fact that, you know, uh, that some decision has been made by uh, ABC Studios or, uh, uh, you know, Lindelof and Q's, whatever it might be, that the official, you know, DVD release and Blu-ray release, which will last forever, and indeed the, the way that these episodes are presented on Netflix is as uh, that Exodus Part 2 has been split into two episodes. So if that's riling uh, some people out there, my apologies. Again, it also is um, it, it is it is also this addre- uh, addressing this issue so that I can continue to release uh, you know as much as possible, uh, given that I am up against a little bit of a data crunch at the end of the month and this sort of thing. So I hope that that is. Um, agreeable to the listeners uh, and also I, I will mention too that uh, marty was kind enough to record the episode summary for exodus part two and um it's absolutely wonderful after he sent it in i just needed to do a little bit of snipping here and there to reflect the fact that it was now split into uh into two different podcasts so uh any if you happen to hear any little uh uh, something that doesn't sound quite right with the uh, episode summary, which I doubt you will, but if you do, uh, the fault is uh, mine and not Marty's. Anyhow, let's move on. This is the 24th episode overall, and there are 97 episodes of Lost to Go. Two quick announcements before we uh, get underway with the Wikipedia summary. Uh, first, the podcast now has a voicemail. I set it up with uh, Google Voice this morning. Uh, from any telephone, you can call 732-707-1815 and uh, leave a voicemail. And uh, hopefully uh, people leave some interesting things to say about the podcast. And uh, we can have uh, something that I've hoped for for a while, kind of a, uh, you know, a, a segment where we're hearing from the various listeners. Uh, so I certainly look forward to that. Again, the phone number is 732 707 
Second thing I'll uh, mention, uh, just as a little bit of podcast news, yesterday I was really excited. I went to the Apple store. I bought a $100 microphone to replace the rock band microphone that I've been using and recording the podcast on so far. I said, you know, only the best for the for the listeners. And um, after doing a couple tests, I can report that the $100 uh, blue brand uh, Snowball microphone is of inferior recording quality to the the Rock Band Logitech uh, microphone that I use that came with Rock Band. Um, so I'm not quite sure what's going on there. Certainly this week I'll be taking the Snowball microphone back to the Apple Store. Maybe I'll try out another uh, equal value microphone. I know they had another one there, but kind of surprised me. So if any of you out there have uh, recommendations for a good podcasting microphone, again, you know, I'm not doing... Uh, you know, I'm not doing recording, I'm not playing my guitar, I'm not, you know, drumming in a band or anything like that. It's just me with a microphone speaking. Uh, if you have any recommendations for a microphone that can, that's better than the Snowball microphone made by Blue, uh, I'd be interested to hear it. Anyhow, with that, let's get into some listener feedback. Uh, Dan Mulderlock on Twitter, a, uh, a top-notch listener, certainly. Uh, had two little bits of information to share. Uh, he answered the question that uh, that I had asked on the podcast. I think I actually asked it a few times. Uh, anyhow, the question was, um, is arts shown on the plane in the flash sideways? And uh, he said that uh, arts was not shown on the plane in the flash sideways, but uh, he was leaving the terminal and Kate ran his luggage over with the taxi. So that certainly, I think, is a bit more appropriate for the for the character, I mean, to have him um, to have him uh, be in the plane at the beginning of the Flash Sideways, where we're seeing, you know, some dearly departed friends, Charlie Boone, etc. You know, it would have been a bit cute to have Arts when, um, you know, he's a great character and all, but he's just a little kind of bit of humor. Um, you know, whereas you know we care for Boone, we care for Charlie, some of these characters who have died. We we cared that Maggie uh, wasn't there. Maggie, pardon me, Shannon, as played by Maggie Grace. Um, but we'll get to that, you know, in a year and a half or two years when we talk about uh, season six. But anyhow, Dan Mulderlock also, um, in reference to uh, the Born to Run podcast, he uh, said that, well, he said this, I think the letter Kate got in Born to Run was informing her about her mother being ill. Not sure from who. That certainly is a question that I had uh, while reading, uh, while reading, while watching um, the episode, and while doing the podcast on it. Um, certainly, that makes sense, Dan. Um, I honestly can't recall if there's, you know, if that letter is now the beginning of some other little semi-interesting uh, Kate, you know, series of flashback stories. The way we went on and on with the uh, with the toy plane, but anyhow, uh, more on Kate, uh, Bonnie, super super friend of the show. Um, also had some thoughts about the Born to Run podcast. Um, she said this, I've always sort of liked Kate, understanding that she was trying to transcend her white trash and likely sexually abusive upbringing. Um, and I think that Bonnie raises a very fair point. Um, I, I had said in response to her, probably the point of view that I took in the Born to Run podcast was from that episode and how we don't know exactly what what is this basic driving force, this basic, you know, uh, kind of wrong in her life that has sent her kind of careening and constantly running. That said, the whole notion of the podcast is to look back, knowing what we know now. So, yes, uh, it, it's a fair criticism from Bonnie um, that 
you know, especially looking back, we should be cutting Kate a little bit of slack here, um, given that it is this, you know, rather awful, um, awful background uh, that she comes from. Um, so that is that. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dan. And thank you, Bonnie, for your feedback. And uh, with that, let's now look ahead to this episode and to the Wikipedia summary for it. Lost, Season 1, Episode 24, Exodus, Part 2. In flashbacks, Jin encounters a Caucasian man who tells Jin, in Korean, to complete his delivery of a watch to Sun's father's friend in California, and says, You'll never be free. Elsewhere, Charlie attempts to find his drugs in his hotel room. Michael and Walt wait in the airport for their flight. Back on the island, the black rock is revealed to be the remains of a wooden sailing ship marooned in the jungle. After Rousseau leaves them, Locke, Kate, and Jack enter the ship through a large hole in the hull. Skeletons are found shackled together. Old mining equipment is also found, including the dynamite. At least two cases of the highly volatile sticks are present inside the ship's hold. While attempting to handle some of the volatile dynamite carefully, the increasingly annoying and unfortunate Arts triggers one of the sticks and meets his demise. The remaining survivors decide to continue on, wrapping the dynamite in wet cloth. They then draw straws to see who will carry it. The unlucky pair of Kate and Locke leave the ship with several sticks of dynamite. Again, a huge thank you to Marty for having uh, read that episode summary and having put in all the work to add the music and all that. Uh, I do apologize, Marty, that uh, I needed to make a little snip here and there in order to uh, fit what we'll be doing on the podcast now, which is just the uh, the first hour of Exodus Part 1, uh, also known as Episode 24 of the uh, of the first season, if you then count Episode 25 as the second half of Exodus Part 2. So I hope that uh, no one is... Uh, entirely confused by that and with that let's now get into my thoughts about the episode the episode opens of course with an eye shot this time from aaron uh, it's been a while since we've seen that particular trope of the opening eye uh, there's also a wonderful thematic link the baby and and the burning black smoke it's a reminder of course that the two are linked we're meant to believe that the others are coming for the baby it's also a reminder of the truth beneath it that uh, Rousseau has lit the fire in order to get the baby to give to the others. Uh, we also rejoined the dynamite contingent, who we left last week while uh, staring up at the black rock. Um, there's also, too, there's a, a quiet uh, reconnection or a quiet reminder of the island debate between mysticism and nature. How exactly does something like this happen? Are you on the same island as I am? Guess that explains it. Oh, hold on, hold on, wait, whoa, hold, wait. What are we, a couple miles inland? A tsunami probably swept it here, huh? Right? There, in a nutshell, is um, a lot about the show, right? You can go for the mysticism. You can go for the magic of it, uh, and that's that's one interpretation. You know, oh, it's the crazy island, right? That answers a lot of questions. 
Uh, then you can also say, well, you know, hold on, have faith that they're going to give us answers and have faith that they're going to give us believable answers. A tsunami wave throwing a boat a mile or two inland, okay, that does sound a bit extreme to me. That said, uh, I don't know if I'm if I went back and looked at you know if we look at some of the uh, the damage from the recent uh, tsunami in Japan, obviously that was you know, damage on a level that uh, that that was surprising uh, to 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 the world, particularly uh, in a country that's uh, prides itself for being so prepared for uh, for uh, earthquakes and the, the ramifications and all that. So. Also, perhaps it was a flat uh, mile or two, so the wave was able to send it uh, forward and all that. You know, point being, there's this you know tug between kind of the magic of the island and the science of the island. Um, man of science, man of faith, being uh, the first episode of season two, you know, so on and so on. But there, anyhow, there is uh, kind of the the two ends of the show. Now, at the end of the clip, uh, Rousseau leaves, and seeing Rousseau leave after that clip. I had to wonder to what degree she acts as kind of a, a cinematic deus ex machina. Of course, loyal listeners will recall that deus ex machina is a literary device whereby essentially an impossible problem is solved. And uh, kind of in the, you know, in the most classical sense, it's uh, you know, from a Greek play where the villain is about to run a sword through the hero and then you know, suddenly Zeus appears and says no and throws a thunderbolt at him and that's it. So... That might have worked for Greek plays in more uh, recent takes. The notion of Deus Ex Machina in drama is a bit of a you know it's a bit of a, a cheap way out. It's um, it's the rocks all of a sudden falling on the bad guy, uh, and that's your resolution of the two hour movie, um, as opposed to uh, the hero uh, using his wisdom to finally defeat the the, the bad guy. This sort of thing. Um, anyhow, does Danielle function as a Deus Ex Machina? She appears. To, with just enough information and knowledge to kickstart things and then disappears again, right? Um, and I mean, certainly, I mean, there's uh, there's a gray area. I'm not totally condemning her as such. I'm not taking kind of the, the literary stink of deus ex machina and putting it on her. Although she does look particularly stinky in this episode. And in case I forget to mention it later, when she shows up later in the episode to take Claire's baby... Um, suffice it to say, I don't think she's wearing anything under that tank top and it must've been a cold day at the beach. Kind of a little bit mixed message there since she's so crazy in this episode. But anyhow, certainly, I mean, there's this thing in drama where, right, you know, life is continuing, continuing, then there is some sort of interruption, you know, (laughs) the plane flies along. That's normal. That's not particularly dramatic. The plane crashes. That's a huge left turn. Um, but Danielle is always the one to show up with these left turns. I suppose that's my my connection between her and Deus Ex Machina. But anyhow, let me let's move past you know the first five minutes of the uh, two hour episode here. Um, the castaways enter the Black Rock, and as they do, the camera catches the fact that there are just so many chains there. Even going so far as to have Locke bump his head on them, then Jack shines a light on a skeleton that's still in its uh, shackles. Locke posits that they must have been slaves and and that the ship must have left the west coast of africa i think it obviously goes without saying that Locke is wrong i mean it's a, it's a good enough guess right it's a safe safe guess a sailing ship a, you know a, a pre uh, uh steam power or gas power or diesel power or nuclear power whatever a, a, a sailing ship with chains on it and people chained to the wall 
excellent guess that it's a slave ship from Africa. Um, but of course, we know now uh, from the very end of season uh, six that uh, this ship left Spain, that it was not uh, African slaves there. Uh, it kind of was uh, questionable and condemned folks along with uh, Richard. And it was headed, uh, I believe it was headed for, for South America. In fact, let me check that quickly. All right, anyhow, so uh, Lostpedia says uh, that uh, they left the Canary Islands and that it's implied that they're headed to the New World. Uh, they they label Richard as having you know as being a slave who becomes the property of Magnus Hanso. I mean, to me, well, I, that's that's not the type of slave to which Locke was referring. But anyhow, enough uh, musings about that. Seeing the Black Rock set. It's an interesting uh, way that they've constructed it. It's essentially a dark room filled with things, right? It's not that you're seeing, uh, you know, oh, I don't know, if you're watching a medical show, you're kind of very aware of, of uh, uh, the, the wall, you know, the tiled walls and the operating lights and this sort of thing. The, the Black Rock, you really don't have a sense of the walls. It's just filled with chains and ropes and boxes and bits and this sort of thing. You don't really see the room as much as you see the things in it. It's worth remembering, too, that one of those chains will, in time, uh, have the real Mr. Sawyer at the end of it. Um, meanwhile, on the outside, we have Hurley and Arts, and we get this, this landmark speech, this beloved speech, the lament of the red shirts. What, am, am I boring you? Huh? You know what, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I'm not cool enough to be part of your merry little band of adventurers. What? I know what it's like when I see it. I teach high school, Pally. You know, you people think you're the only ones on this island doing anything of value. I got news for you. There were 40 other survivors of this plane crash. And we are all people, too. So obviously this notion of the lament of the red shirts, it's, uh, you know, red shirts being a Star Trek reference, the people that always got killed. And here we have Arts uh, kind of uh, stepping into the spotlight for a couple episodes only to meet his end uh, fairly soon in this episode. Uh, and it's, he's speaking for all those background characters who, uh, you know, whoever stepped on stage to utter a few words and then get a, get a spear or a gunshot or whatever and uh, slowly exit. Um, and I mean, of course, Arts isn't speaking to Hurley as much as he's speaking to us. He's reminding us that inside our constructed fiction, there are, we could imagine, these small and significant background players who uh, simply have not been called up by the, the masters of the story to, to star in the story. So anyhow, as, as we head towards the end of Arts, it is amazing. It's simply amazing to think what the writers have constructed for us, what they've made for us. Here, Arts is an irascible, annoying, fully fleshed out character, and his sadness is our sadness too. He's speaking about difficult relationships, problems in the workplace, the difficulties of life, not feeling like you're fitting in, not being part of the, the, the whatever crowd. And here he is, he's standing tall and proud, and he's sharing his knowledge uh, as a knowledgeable man who's prepared to help his fellow survivors. I mean, really, as a it's a noble thing. I mean, you know, there's the whole, um, uh, you know, the various jokes about the minor characters who die, Scott and Steve and all this and this. But, I mean, I think the part of the reason Arts stands out is because 
when he shows up as a character, we kind of, you know, we imagine he's been in the background this whole time, even though the actor hasn't been. But, you know, when he shows up, he's saying, hey, let me in, let me help, let me contribute to the group. And, yeah, he's kind of jerky about it, but he's there, he's being himself. All these people are being the selves that they want to be. Why not arts? And, uh, unfortunately, he he pays for it. Um, And, indeed, I have to say that re-watching the business with the dynamite it's worse than the initial viewing. And I mean worse in terms of tension. I don't mean any fault of the construction of it. Here I'm taking my pithy notes for the podcast, and then it's just a matter of waiting and waiting and waiting, knowing that the bomb was going to go off. I just couldn't quite remember when, knowing that it was going to be that scene with Arts wrapping it. And even when he did blow up, I still jumped. It was just, it was an absolutely incredible, incredible uh, scene to see again. You know, a lot of these things don't work as well the second time, and nor are they necessarily meant to. I mean, certainly the show stands up to to re- reviewing, but or you know, re- to to view again. I mean, by reviewing, but um, it's just incredible. This is a better scene the second time around, knowing that it's going to happen. Uh, and then right after that explosion, the show wisely chooses to go to commercial. Uh, it's slightly odd because it is this kind of the tension of the moment is gone. Usually you say, you know, the dynamite is, you know, the, the bomb is ticking, and that's when you go to commercial. But with this, there's kind of the, the, the shock that you've just lost this enjoyable character, one who, you know, if you're playing along at home upon first viewing, you might be saying, you know, hey, the, this is something that they've added to the recurring cast. This is going to be like Rose. This is going to be like, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And suddenly he's gone. So they go to commercial. When we return, we're in flashback. Uh, it's familiar. It's from last week, Sun spilling the coffee on gin. Uh, we get to see another crisscross moment, Saeed walking by. Uh, again, these these crisscross moments, to me, in addition to kind of being cute and interesting, it's just a reminder that you know these characters are connected, and, and indeed we all are connected. Um, there's, of course, more of gin too in the bathroom. Uh, Caucasian man is suddenly speaking to gin in Korean, reminding him of the pressure of Mr. Pike. I have to quibble, though, that the man reminds Jin that uh, Mr. Pike is Jin's fa- father-in-law and employer. Now, is that bit of line, is that really for Jin or is that for the people at home? Hint, it's for the people at home. You know, they're, they're just reminding everybody, particularly new viewers. So, just puts a little added pressure on Jin. And I, I believe the line, too, is, well, yeah, yeah, yeah the line is something like... Um, that the gin will never be free. That's the big takeaway from that scene. Um, he's never been free, and he never will be free. I- implication being freedom for Mr. Pike. The show then very smartly shows super free gin on the raft, enjoying the fact that he's master and commander of his own destiny. Uh, it's just a wonderful contrast. Here he is. He's in this enclosed uh, bathroom, and not to read into it too much, but you think you know, a a bathroom is obviously closed in for privacy, but a bathroom is also this this highly constructed thing, right? You know, for 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 millions of years, humans have just gone to the bathroom outside, out there, wherever wherever you had to. And now we've kind of constructed all these things to have a bathroom. We have uh, plumbing and sewage lines and factories for toilets and factories for. Uh, soap and uh, toilet paper and all this. So it's this kind of highly um, uh, constructed, almost you know, artificial in that it's not natural. He's in this highly artificial uh, environment and then cut to 
just about as natural as you can be. Bamboo raft on the ocean. I mean, that's, you know, it's natural floor beneath you. Yeah, there's some steel struts from the uh, from the, the, the plane wreckage, but here you are surrounded by God's great nature. Um, as free as you can be down to, you know, you want to go that way, you turn the rudder that way. It's just pure freedom. Although it is worth mentioning he's free, but only only for a short time. Uh, I'll quickly mention, too, that Michael wonders aloud how an island so big was never discovered. It's another mystery that the show is asking. The answer, as we know, is that it remains hidden due to those pesky electromagnetic waves. And, of course, it helps that, you know, from time to time it can bop around the South Pacific uh, when the donkey wheel is turned. Uh, the show also takes some time to revisit its end from last week, kind of to, to echo it. Tor- soaring tender strains from Giacchino with a soaring helicopter shot. Just very, very nice. Again, it, you know, it, it reinforces this notion, right, that... Oh, there goes the fire whistle again. My apologies. Um, it, it reinforces this notion that the raft is going to work. You know, it's, it, it's heading towards... Um, the the zinger that, you know, the raft really doesn't get that far. It doesn't get farther than a little kind of, you know, boat with an outboard motor can get. Um, but we don't know that yet. It's it's uh, reinforcing this notion that they're, they're free, they're headed, and you're sitting here saying, how's the show going to continue with them uh, being so free? But anyhow, it's interesting to follow the narrative from that point. We go from Jin on the raft to Sun looking emotionally out to sea. Behind her, right, so we've gone, you know, Jin, raft, then to Sun. Kind of almost on the flip of that shot. Behind her, there's an out-of-focus Shannon who trudges by with Vincent and too many bags and is kind of frustrated and overwhelmed. Uh, Shannon comes into focus, and then we see an out-of-focus Saeed come into frame. He kind of breaks the ice off of their fight, and he comes over to help. We've we've talked before about how the show can be meager in its sharing time all the way around. You know, heck, isn't that what arts is complaining about, right? You know, and I've certainly have complained. You know, you'll have some kind of uh, you know Kate and Jack episode, and then at the very end they'll say, "And here's a montage with Son, Jin, Charlie, Michael, Walt, and Vincent." Yeah. Um, so the show doesn't always spread it around. Here, though, it there's just this smart through line that keeps it all bound together. Jin. And everybody in the raft, to Sun, to Shannon, to Saeed. And we get to see more wonderful acting out of Maggie Grace. Her Shannon is still in mourning, suffering under her loss uh, and her, her loneliness, and the fact that uh, even this, this island world is ending, in, in that you know, the others are coming after all. And uh, there's a, a wonderful clip to underscore that. I need these things. I can't just leave them. What are we doing? Hiding? As if they won't find us. It's just... It's too much. It's too much. It won't be too much if I carry it for you. It's like, you know, damn it, there's your Saeed and Shannon love affair that they come back to in the finale. 
The people who complained that he wasn't with Nadia, you didn't get it. There it is in a nutshell. She's carrying the the the, the physical things of hers, the physical things of Boone's, and the physical things of uh, Walt in, in the dog. And she's saying it's too much to carry. She doesn't mean the crap that she's trudging along. She means this emotional weight of the fact that every single thing is falling apart in her life. Her brother who has taken care of her is gone. Saeed, who had been reliable to her, has abandoned her, rightfully so, but has abandoned her. And the little, you know, sit on the beach and eat, have a boar barbecue every so often and make fires, that isn't working anymore either. Strange, mysterious, crazy people are coming to kill them. It's just too much for her. And what's Saeed's response? It's not too much if you let me help you. Come with me. It's marvelous. It's absolutely marvelous. It's, it's you know, there's, there's just so much there. And it's, uh, it's done quickly and beautifully. From that wonderful moment, we now uh, head back to the dynamite crew. Uh, when Locke and Jack are removing the dynamite, uh, the effect of ha- having arts blown up now comes into full effect, right? Every little movement of the dynamite is now fraught with stomach-aching peril. It's just this wonderfully, wonderfully tense moment. Uh, and it comes with a, a little bit of dialogue as well. I'm removing the driest pieces to minimize our risk transporting it. You ever play Operation? Sure. Don't touch the sides. I... Always got nailed on the funny bone. You like to play games, John? Absolutely. There we have Jack the Doctor, who's uh, fearful in the face of death. And not kind of, you know, fearful like shaking, but just. As a doctor, somebody who knows that uh, death is the ultimate uh, uh, opponent in his world, right? Somebody comes in with massive internal bleeding. What's the thing you want to stop? You want to prevent them from dying. If that means them uh, having an organ taken out, fine. It prevents their death. If that means them needing to amputate a a limb, fine. It prevents the death. So here's Jack who holds death in such kind of uh, fearful regard. on the flip side, we have Locke, the reborn man who appreciates every day he's had since landing on the island. Someone who thinks that destiny might be on his side, but if not, it's been a great ride with some bonus time nonetheless. Moving on, Danielle returns to camp acting extra crazy, asking for Saeed. Uh, once Charlie goes to get him, Giacchino slowly lets his strings spell out the tension in the moment. Danielle looking longingly at the baby. Claire realizing that she's alone with the most unstable person that they know. And after the fast tension of the dynamite, this is really a slow build, uh, all building all to Claire's realization that she scratched Danielle after being abducted by Ethan. Um, after a commercial break, we have a Charlie flashback. It does go on a tad too long, in my opinion. Maybe it's just because I'm such a huge Charlie fan. Uh, but it's a reminder that he was an unreliable fall-down junkie the morning that 8.15 took off. 
We return to the island with reliable Charlie getting Saeed. Well, mostly reliable after all, once we learn that Rousseau has taken the baby. Where's my baby? Oh my god! Is he alright? Rousseau, was she alone? Did she take my baby? Did she take my baby? Oh, Claire, which way did she go? I don't know! She took my baby! It's your fault! You brought into the camp! If you just give me a gun! Do not hit me again. You want to waste time assigning blame? There's plenty to go around. I love that Charlie is standing up for all that he believes in, protecting his woman and all that. I also love that Saeed can take a punch and then grab his assailant by the throat and tell him not to do it again. Uh, of course, at that point when the show is at its most tense, transporting killer dynamite, baby theft, bad guy others on the way, naturally it's just a great time to take a break and add a smile with all those frowns. What about you? You want to carry some dynamite too? What? You got some arnest on you. One of the great, great eternal lines of the show. It's just just wonderful, just wonderful. I'll just mention at this point that I hope the podcast isn't feeling too disjointed. My analysis follows the flow of the show, the, the different flashbacks and whatnot. You know, so we keep jumping from the raft, the black rock, the beach, flashbacks. Um, at any rate. There's a lovely little bit on the raft where Sawyer is reading everyone's private letters from home, of course, and Walt is chastising him for it. Walt asks how uh, it would feel if someone ever read his, meaning Sawyer's, letter. Sawyer says the only letter he's ever written was to the man he's going to kill. It's just this interesting moment where uh, the kid reveals his honesty and the bad man reveals that he's a bad man. Um, anyhow... Each time we return to the pre-flight flashbacks, I couldn't help but think of the finale, the, the, the series finale, where ensemble flashes painted the picture of this whole community. Here, too, we have it. The flashbacks aren't particularly giving any uh, you know, amazing information. Michael and Walt aren't speaking. Walt is, uh, or pardon me, Michael is overwhelmed by the prospect of being a parent. Uh, Locke is being wheeled by uh, at this point in the show. Still, these flashbacks remind us of who these people are and where they were uh, where they were grounded before the crash, kind of where they were grounded in life. There's also a lovely bit of irony that in the flashback, Walt is controlling a game. On the raft, he's asked to control the whole raft. Um, there's a heartfelt moment that follows. Walt loves dad. Dad loves Walt. Um, it's just this great moment. And of course, it's broken up by a loud, scary scene in which a log, yes, a, a random log, uh, rips off the rudder. It feels manufactured. I mean, must every scene end with a zinger? Um, oh, well, I mean, I guess it does foretell the frailty of the raft that we're going to learn at the end of this episode, but say la vie. Um, I, I do continue to marvel, though, at just how much the episode spreads things around. It isn't all action. Uh, such as when Son and Shannon share a quiet moment in the caves. It allows, too, for a bit of rumination over the show's big picture. Do you think all this, what we've been through, do you think we're being punished? Punished for what? Things we did before. 
secrets we kept, the lies we told. Who do you think is punishing us? No such thing as fate. I mean, it was a popular theory at the time, of course, that they were in purgatory. Uh, ironically, that's where they ended up at, you know, in the last season uh, in the Flash Sideways, which uh, I think could fairly be called a, a purgatory, purgatory of sorts. Um, so it's just kind of a convenient bit of irony, to say the least. Um, I wonder if the decision to have a flash sideways, which was uh, some pre-heaven, uh, pre-heaven purgatory, for lack of a, of a better word, given that purgatory is probably the best one, um, I wonder if that was a bit of kind of, uh, I don't know, smart aleckness in the writer's room where it's like, you know, we finally proved that it wasn't purgatory because we got them off the island, we showed that the island is the real world and you can travel between the two and all that. So uh, now let's now let's do the purgatory thing. Now that nobody talks about that anymore. Anyhow, um, the the interesting juxtaposition uh, is that the very next scene, kind of this, you know, being tested by or being punished for your sins. There's a juxtaposition with the next scene where Charlie and Saeed are on the hunt for Rousseau. They pause for a sixty second breather at the Beechcraft, long enough for Saeed to repeat that there were Nigerians on board. That might be seeding for season two, perhaps. I mean, after all, Anna Lucia was introduced last week. And now we have an echo connection. But anyhow, Saeed also casually mentions that there's a heroin on board the plane. Uh, surely it was a fair question to ask if they were being punished. You know, fair to ask when you're watching this for the first time and the, and, and it's, you rewind yourself back to 2005. Um so it's a fair enough question to ask if they're being punished, given that the newly drug-free Charlie gets an almost endless supply of drugs literally thrown at his feet. That uh, particular scene also reminds me of Dominic Monaghan's other famous project, Lord of the Rings. Uh, the shot composition in this episode's drug reveal, uh, it's really just so evocative of, of the ring's kind of quiet, seductive calling to those that it wants to corrupt. Uh, and certainly we have, I mean, just Charlie kind of standing there, uh, the, the corruption flowing over him. Anyhow, from such uh, high and lofty things, Hurley once again becomes the voice of the audience. So, dude, what do you think's inside that hatch thing? What do you think's inside it? Stacks of TV dinners from the 50s or something? And TVs, the cable. Some cell phones, clean socks, soap, Twinkies, you know, for dessert, after the TV dinners. Twinkies keep for like 8,000 years, man. <laughs> I like Twinkies, too. Come on, really, what do you think's inside? Hope. I think hope's inside. Hey, I've been saying that hope is inside there, too. Uh, this is the show fully committing to the notion of the hatch being a Pandora's box. Um, and, and, I mean, it's, you know, it's in contrast to Saeed saying it's awful things in there. Um, 
you know, I think that we're always meant to kind of follow uh, follow Locke's spirit, even though he is wrong frequently about many things. You know, he's kind of he is kind of the the shaman of the island, and uh, which I suppose leads to part of the irony when um, when Locke's form becomes uh, inhabited or, or driven by uh, the the man in black. Not that the man in black is zombifying him. You know, you understand, but. When Terry O'Quinn starts playing the man in black, that's kind of the added irony that we've been following. You know, Locke has been a spiritual guide, and now he becomes a spiritual or, you know, or a devilish guide in later seasons. But anyhow, there we have Hope, you know, it being suggested that Hope is inside this box. And for Hurley, too, I mean, it's worth mentioning that he's mostly right. Prepackaged food, showers, soap, clothing. It's just... Uh, it's, it's a moment of truth between two, uh, two truthful characters, uh, indeed. And um, that scene ends the first half of the episode. And a reminder that if you watched this episode on Netflix or, or perhaps other digital sources, uh, the rest of Exodus Part 2 is listed as Episode 25 uh, on Netflix, even though it really isn't. It's just a double-length um, uh, Episode 24. And as I mentioned earlier, the same is true also about the uh, the uh, series uh, DVD releases. Uh, anyhow, that will uh, certainly conclude my thoughts about uh, that uh, first hour of Exodus Part 2. But of course, the podcast is not over. Uh, we'll take a look at Lostpedia to see whatever uh, bits and pieces I've missed along the way. Certainly, there are uh, some things that apply to Exodus Part 2, but I'll save for next week in this ever confusing notion of Exodus Part 2 now being sliced into, uh, well, with the DVD and what Netflix calls Exodus Part 2 and Exodus Part 3. But anyhow, uh, what I will share is this gem from Lostpedia. According to Damon Lindelof, a flashback for Vincent had been planned for this episode. The scene would show Vincent's experience at the airport. However, details of the scene were spoiled by the press, so the producers decided not to shoot it since it was not important and was only an in-joke. I, for one, kind of uh, regret that they didn't give Vincent a flashback. I mean, he does, uh, he certainly is a, an everlasting character and one that survives all the trials and tribulations on the island. Uh, and, I mean, of course, uh, you know, one, uh, one character who appears uh, at the very start of the show and the very end of the show in uh, Jack waking up in the bamboo thicket and, uh, and Jack dying in the bamboo thicket. So, ah, well, the road not taken, uh, I suppose there were more uh, important flashbacks to get to. Anyhow, as we start to wrap up this podcast, I'll just mention that uh, many listeners may enjoy going to geekversusgeek.com, which is a place where uh, a blog topic is posted every couple of days, and uh, some of us battle it out, and contributors are uh, always being being sought at geekversusgeek.com, and uh, there's a link there that you can follow to get more information. Uh, and if you don't want to participate, you always can uh, read about the latest various topics that we are sharing our thoughts on. And uh, indeed, speaking of sharing thoughts, there's a couple of different ways that you can share your feedback about Looking Back at Lost. You can say hello to me on Twitter, where I am Looking Back Lost. You can send an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com. 
you can uh, leave a message on the call line, which uh, the phone number is 732-707-1815. That goes to my Google Voice number, so you truly can feel free to call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, regardless of uh, whatever time it might be in your neck of the woods, uh, because, well, basically, unless I'm logged into uh, Gmail uh, or Google Voice at that time, I'm not going to hear it ring, so you're not going to wake me up or interrupt me or anything. Uh, you can visit the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. And of course, you can always find the show on iTunes, where reviews are always appreciated. So thank you very, very much for listening. Once again, this continues to be so much fun. And uh, I look forward to joining you all again soon for episode 125, Exodus Part 2, the second half, known in some circles as episode 125, Exodus Part 3. Take care. Bye-bye. And then my third wife, she says, get this, she says, I didn't sign up for this. Now you tell me, what the hell is that even supposed to mean?